Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 15. Book of Acts chapter 15. We're in a series called Great Expectations. What is expected of you and me as church members or as church attenders, as, part, as, as parts of this family that we call Palmetto Baptist Church? What is expected of us? We live in a time when more and more people view the church as a place they can slip into anonymously and slip out without having to connect or to be a part or to give any kind of commitment whatsoever. But I think if you look at the New Testament, the Lord expects more of His people. The Lord expects more of church members and attenders than just to slip in anonymously and slip out without having to give a whole lot of ourselves to what God is doing in that church. We're talking about great expectations, and so far we've uh, examined a few expectations of church members. First of all, it is expected that we regularly attend and participate in the worship services of our church. We show up and we show out. It's expected that we will do that. Secondly, it is expected that we will have realistic expectations of each other. We're not going to expect too little of each other, but at the same time, we're not going to expect too much of, our, of each other and therefore disappoint ourselves and each other as we do church together. And today, we're going to look at a third expectation, and it has to do with what I call the church's vision. Now, you may uh, substitute for the word vision, the word goal, or the word purpose. But uh, for purposes of this message, I'm going to refer to all of that as the word vision. The, God's vision for our church. And, and what is our role in God's vision for Palmetto Baptist Church? I'm going to read a lot of verses from Acts chapter 15. This is a, a pivotal chapter in the book of Acts because it is the first, it marks the first major, major crisis in the New Testament church. They've already had some crises, but this is the first major crisis. So major is it that they call a church council of all the leaders of the New Testament church together to try to find a solution to the problem. And they come up with a solution. And then they communicate that solution to the churches. And that solution was the vision that the New Testament church had. And we can learn some things from, from this particular passage as well as a lot of other passages throughout the Scripture about God's vision for our church and our role in that vision. Acts chapter 15, beginning with verse number 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers... Here's what they were teaching. Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Unless you are circumcised, as we were taught 
by Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with these folks. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. They're talking about what is required to be saved. This is a pivotal question. Verse 6. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. He said, brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished... James, who by this time was the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, and he also notably was the half-brother of Jesus Christ. James stood up and spoke up, and he said, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, quote, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, these, these things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers, with them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from among us without our authorization and have disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agree to choose, we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. 
You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word, and we're grateful for your purpose. We thank you, Lord, that you have a purpose, and your purpose is clear. And we ask your forgiveness for the too many times we have muddied the waters of your purpose and made it unclear when when you initially made it crystal clear. Lord, help us, like the New Testament church, to be clear about our mission to reach people for you, to lead people into a relationship with Jesus Christ and with the church. And Lord, I pray that we would not only be clear about that vision, but that we would actually get on board that vision. Lord, we come to you and we pray for people uh, who we care about. I pray, Lord, for Sharon Seagrave's daddy, Bobby Kaiser. Uh, Lord, in the aftermath of a stroke, I pray for her mom and dad. I pray for Lawson Sayer, Lisa Grace's dad, and also Lisa's mom. And I pray for Mike Laster. And I pray for Mr. Ed Johnson, for Lindsey Lambert. And I thank you that uh, Jackson Sims' uh, injuries were not so bad, but that he could play uh, football again. Lord, I pray for Charlie Pace, for Dot Bates. I pray for uh, Clyde Taylor. And I pray for our church. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see exactly what it is you've called us to do and help us to commit ourselves to doing it. We love you. We want to be all about you. And we pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a man who was struggling to get a washing machine through the door of his house. He was trying to do it by himself, and as he was struggling to get the washing machine through uh, the door of his house, one of his neighbors came walking by, taking uh, an afternoon walk, exercising, and the neighbor looked over and saw his friend trying to get the washing machine by himself through the front door. And being a good neighbor, he went over to the neighbor and he said, He said, hey, I see you're trying to move this washing machine through your door. Uh, You want me to give you some help? And the guy said, he he breathed a big sigh of relief, and he says, man, would I ever, I would appreciate that. If both of us are working on this uh, washer together, surely it won't take us any time to get it through the door. And so uh, one got on one side, and the other got on the other side, and they they wrestled, and they struggled, and, and they pushed and pulled for about five minutes. And finally, the neighbor who'd come in to help said, man... He said, I thought we'd get this thing into your house a whole lot sooner than we have. And the guy on the other said, on the other uh, side of the washer said, get it in the house. I'm trying to get the thing out of my house. <laughs> Watch this. Is the goal clear? And does everybody involved clearly know it? Is the goal clear? Is the vision clear, and does everyone involved clearly know and understand what that vision 
is. You see, in church work, which is a lot like many other organizations, in church work there are three great necessities. First of all, there must be a goal. There must be a goal. And second, not only must there be a goal, but there must be clear, understandable, and exhaustive communication of that goal. There must be a goal, and there must be a clear communication of that goal. Kenneth Boa is uh, a, a, uh, uh, an author and uh, a leading uh, uh, teacher of biblical studies. He's the president of Reflections Ministries and Trinity House Publishers. And he said this, he says, It is one thing to have a vision, but without clear communication, vision will never become reality. He said, until others have understood the vision well enough to articulate it themselves, they cannot be expected to pursue it with passion. Leonard Sweet, who is another uh, uh, fairly known, uh, well-known preacher in America, said this. He says, it's not people who are right who change the world. It's people who can communicate their definition of right to others who change the world. It takes a clear goal. Secondly, it takes a clear communication of that goal. But there is a third part, a third necessity for the effectiveness and success of any church that must go along with having a clear goal and, com- and clearly communicating that goal. You see, there are churches that are failing because they have no clear Goal. They couldn't tell you what they're here to accomplish to save their lives. There are other churches who are failing because, not because they don't have a goal. They have a goal, but they're not clearly communicating it to their people. And therefore, if the folks don't understand it, if you don't understand what we're here for, then we're not going to successfully accomplish anything. But there are other churches who are failing. They have a goal. And the goal is clearly communicated, but this third vital necessity is falling by the wayside. And it's simply this. Church folks must get on board the goal, the vision. We have to get on board the vision. Now, in Scripture, there are multiple examples of times when God's people were given a goal... Usually that goal was communicated by God to the leaders. The leaders then in turn, once they understood the goal, clearly communicated that goal to God's people. But then, then the goal, the vision, was in the court, the basketball court of God's people. They had to do something with that vision. And what God expected them to do was to get on board with that vision. Back in the book of Joshua, chapter 1, You hear these words, says, After the death of Moses, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Now that my servant is dead, you and all these people, you need to get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land that I'm about to give you. And I will give you every place where you set your foot, just like I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, from the Euphrates 
all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. Nobody will be able to stand against you. In verse 6 of Joshua chapter 1, he says, Be strong then and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors. What, What I want you to see there is God gave Joshua a very clear vision. You are to cross Jordan. You're to take this land. And he even gave Joshua the geographic dimensions of the land they were to conquer. And then, in verse 10, you find these words. Again, Joshua 1. So so Joshua ordered the officers of the people. He said, go through the camp and tell the people. Get your provisions ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. I want you to get this, folks. What you see here in the book of Joshua chapter 1 is that God gave Joshua a vision for the Israelites. Joshua communicated the vision clearly to the people, and the people were called upon to embrace and act upon that vision. If the people don't act on that vision, they stay on the other side of the Jordan and never even set foot into the land that God had promised to give them. God's people not only had to see that there was a vision, clearly understand the vision, they had to embrace the vision. In 1 Chronicles chapter 28, beginning with verse 2, 1 Chronicles chapter 28, David, David has a vision. And in this vision, God tells him, he says, I want the Israelites, to build me a temple. I want them to build a temple. And David wanted to build it himself. But understand, that was not God's vision. God gave the vision to David, but part of that vision included that David not be the one who build the temple, but that his son Solomon build the temple. And so God gives this vision to David. And this temple that, that they're to build is to be built under the supervision of Solomon, the son of David. And, and then David says to the people in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, beginning with verse 2, he says, So now I charge you, talking to the people, I charge you in the sight of all Israel and of the assembly of the Lord and in the hearing of our God, be careful to follow all the commands of the Lord your God that you may possess this good land and pass it on as an inheritance to your descendants forever. Now, once again, I want you to see this pattern. God has a vision for his people. He communicates it to uh, the leaders. In this case, it was David. David, in turn, once he understood that vision, communicated it to the people. And the people clearly understood it. And now, once having heard and understood the vision, God expected the Israelites to embrace and act upon that vision. You see that pattern? It was the pattern with Moses, the pattern with Joshua. It's the pattern here with David. You go into the Gospels. Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 45. Jesus fully understood, you're not surprised by this, I know he fully understood his vision, the purpose for which God the Heavenly Father sent him to earth. And here's what Jesus, uh, how Jesus interpreted his vision. Chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
You see, Jesus understood what his vision was not, and he understood what his vision was. He understood that his vision was not to be served. But rather, he understood that his vision was to serve other people and to give his life as a ransom for others. That is, to give his life on the cross in our place, to take our penalty for our sin. Jesus knew that that was his vision. Now, you understand, uh, we need to understand the context of his statement there in John chapter 10, verse 45, because he says this in response to James and John. James and John come up to him as they do on a number of occasions in the Gospels, and they want favored status. They want the Lord to show favoritism to them. Uh, on one occasion, their mother came to Jesus secretly, and she said, uh, Lord... Whenever you get to heaven, would you make sure that my boys sit on both sides of you up there in heaven? I mean, I kind of want them to be up there in the, in the, you know, the executive suite while they're watching what goes on in heaven. Here in Mark chapter 10, it's not James and John's, it's James and John's mother who comes to Jesus, but they come to him themselves. Lord, come over here. We want to talk with you. We know that you are Lord of Lords, King of Kings. We know that when you go to heaven, you're going to be on the throne and we're going to be there with you. And we understand that we're already going to be pretty close to the front, but the front is not quite good enough for us. James and I, or John and I, would like to be able to sit on both sides of you. You know, you can have the big chair we kind of like the next to big chairs right there beside you so that everybody can see us up there right next to you. And Jesus, evidently they asked him thinking he was going to give it to them. After all, Jesus did say, ask and, and you'll receive, didn't he? Even James and John didn't quite understand that correctly. And so they come to him asking for a seat on either side of Jesus in heaven. And Jesus said this, he says, look, he said, I didn't come here to be served. I didn't come here to be in the best seats. He says, I came to serve. You see, James and John's request was audacious to say the least, but it revealed an attitude in James and John that was not in agreement with what Jesus was all about. Get this, Jesus' mission was not to be catered to, it was to cater to. So it's clear here, once again, same pattern that we saw with Moses, that we saw with Joshua, that we saw with David and others in the, New Te- in the Old Testament, the same pattern is true with Jesus. Jesus knew what God's vision for his life, his ministry was. He not only understood it, but he communicated it to his disciples who took a long time to really get it. And it's questionable, even at the point of his crucifixion, whether they really understood it. But he communicated it to them. And his purpose was that they would take this vision, embrace the vision, and use it to change the world, which they did, beginning with the book of Acts chapter 2. And so that brings us here again to Acts chapter 15. Here we have the New Testament church. They're reaching people for Christ. Paul and Barnabas have been going out preaching to the non-Jewish nations. They started out preaching to Jews, and then they they went on to preach to non-Jewish people, otherwise called Gentiles or Greeks. And they were winning them to Christ. But the question came up, What are the requirements for the Gentiles to be saved? What are the requirements for salvation? And there was a group 
fairly large group and a fairly vocal group within the church who said, these Gentiles, in order to be saved, they need to receive Christ. Yes, we go along with that. But also they need to be circumcised and they need to be following all the Jewish rituals that are laid out in the Old Testament law. There's only about 653 of them. All of these things we need to place on them as requirements in order for them to be saved. The fact of the matter was, if they placed those kind of requirements on them, none of them would ever be saved. And so you have these two groups competing in the New Testament church. One group saying you got to be circumcised and you have to obey all the Jewish rituals as well as receive Christ in order to be saved. Another group says, no, salvation is a free gift. You don't do anything outside of receiving it. You just receive it. Nothing else should be required. And it got to be such a problem that they called the first church council somewhere around 48 to 50 A.D., They gathered in Jerusalem, the church leaders, and they heard both groups. Both groups were represented, and both groups began speaking. And then Paul and Barnabas got up, and they spoke. And then Peter got up, and he spoke. And finally, James, who was the pastor, stood up. And when he stood up, evidently by this time, he was like the man everybody listened to in Jerusalem. And when he stood up, the place fell silent. And he said, folks, after all, after all that I've heard and after all you and I have heard, here's what I conclude we should do. We should not put on the Gentiles all these requirements. For it is clear that, that in Paul, Paul and Barnabas' ministry and in Peter's ministry, these people received the Lord. And when they received the Lord, the Holy Spirit uh, dwelt in them. He, he took up residence in their hearts and lives. And he did that without them having to fulfill any of these Jewish rituals. Therefore... We should not lay these additional requirements on these people. Now, that was the vision that was decided upon by the church in Acts chapter 15. We're going to preach to Jews and to non-Jews that salvation is a free gift of God that you receive when you invite Christ into your life to be your Savior and Lord. No ifs, no ands, no buts. That was the vision. But it wasn't enough for the vision to be clearly understood by the leaders. Because as you saw there, James then had the church to appoint Paul and Barnabas and Silas and another guy named uh, Judas Barsabbas, different from Judas Iscariot, don't get those mixed up. And this committee, this team of leaders, was to go out to all the different churches and to communicate the vision that was decided upon by the church at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. And once they shared that vision to the churches, what were the churches expected to do? You know the answer to this. They were expected to embrace that vision and to act upon it accordingly. Same pattern that we saw in uh, the Old Testament. Same pattern that we saw Joshua, David, Moses, Jesus, and now the same pattern in the New Testament church. It is consistent throughout. And so... Uh, What can we say about this? We, just like the members of the New Testament church, are expected to get on board with the vision that is set for our church. In fact, in in, uh, almost 30 years of ministry, my own ministry, the people who have given churches the most trouble 
are not the folks wanting to open up a, a porn store down the road. They're not the folks who are uh, uh, opening up a liquor store two blocks down. The folks that have given churches the most trouble, in my own experience, are those who are in the church, who see the church, strongly vote in a vision for the church, and yet they obstruct, they oppose, they criticize that vision, hook, line, and sinker. So what is our vision? In the simplest terms, in the broadest terms, our vision, first of all, is to lead as many people as possible into a relationship with Jesus Christ and into active involvement in our church. That is our primary vision leading people to Christ and into active involvement with our church. Now that latter part, active involvement in our church, we do it here uh, through a a three-part process that we call connecting, growing, and serving. We, We explain it this way. We connect with God and with other folks in our worship and now also in our home groups, which is a good place to connect with new people. We grow stronger in our relationship with God through our participation in our uh, Sunday school classes and in our uh, small groups, our home groups. And then we serve God by serving others in our community and around the world. We connect, grow, and serve. So you have a two-part a two-part vision that is a vision for our church. Now, we could narrow it down a little more specifically, but in the broadest terms, our, our vision is to reach as many people as we can for a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and into active involvement in our church, connecting them with God and other people through worship and small groups, growing in our relationship with God and other people through our Sunday school and, again, small groups, and serving God by serving others in our community and around the world. That's our vision. Now, let me just say something right here very quickly. Everything we do, everything must be measured by how effectively it accomplishes that vision. And anything that doesn't contribute to that vision, I don't care how good it is, ought to be done away with And only those things that contribute heavily to that vision of reaching people for Christ and active involvement in our church through connecting, growing, and serving, only those activities, those ministries, those things that contribute heavily to that vision should be embraced and followed. In fact, it is in in following that vision that we made some of the most critical decisions in the last 13 years that I've been here in this church. It is to fulfill that that vision. That's the reason we started uh, a contemporary service in January of 2001, to reach not only folks who are traditionally mindset, but also contemporary mindset. That's the reason that in 2003, we decided to relocate. And we've had folks to fight that all along the way, a small minority, even though, the, even though we voted when we voted 96% to relocate. Why are we doing that? Because we can reach more people down there a mile south of here than we can here. We can reach more people in a new facility down there than we can here. That's the reason that we do it. That's why we have the staff we have 
in order to uh, accomplish that vision. That's why we're discussing what are our best options with regard to our morning worship service schedule. And I don't know exactly what that is, but I know this. We must ask ourselves, what is it that positions us? What kind of schedule, what kind of activities positions us to best reach most, the most people for Christ and for an active relationship involvement in this church. Whatever that is, that's what we must do. And my friends, it's not asking ourselves, well, what do you prefer? Or what do you like? Or what do you dislike? That's the wrong question. The question is, what do those folks out there who are not in church, what would they come to most likely? Listen, we've already reached you. Why should I ask you? Why should we ask you what you want? You don't like that, I know. But why should we? Why, why should we ask you? Listen, we're not trying to reach you. We have you, I think. Except for those of you who only have, only have your leg in worship and nothing else. You're, you're almost out of here anyway. But we're here not to reach those of us who are already here. We're to reach those out there. What will they come to? This vision is why we're experimenting with home groups. The fastest growing churches in America have home groups. I can't explain all the, all the dynamics of why it's working. All I know is I'm observing what's happening, and that's what's happening. And so we're experimenting with it. Would I rather not experiment with it? You better believe it. I would. I'd rather not have to do that. I'd rather have to not do a lot of things. But let me tell you. The goal is not my comfort. The goal is not your comfort. The goal is not your preference. The goal is reaching unchurched people for Christ. What will it take to reach them? That is the paramount question. Because our vision is to reach people for a relationship to Christ and active involvement with our church through connecting, growing, and serving. Great expectations. You, know what, you want to know what's expected of you? It is expected that once we clearly, we leaders clearly communicate the vision to you as a church, it is expected that you and I will embrace that vision and act upon it. And it is perhaps the most important expectation that is laid on your doorstep. And I'm laying it there right now. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you've never been unclear about your vision for us. We have had times when we were unclear, and we, we who are leaders have been very foggy at times as to what our church is here for. Lord, there's never been any doubt for you. You came to give your life a ransom for others, and you ordered us, ordered us, not suggested, you ordered us to make disciples of all the nations, reach people for Christ among all the peoples around us. And so, Lord, help us to hear the vision that we reach as many people as we can for a relationship with Christ and into active involvement in our church through connecting them growing them, and helping us all to serve together. Lord, help us to hear that vision 
Help us to understand that vision, to embrace it and apply it to our lives. Because we want to be your church. In Jesus' name, amen.